0: So when I want to pick up the theme uh, that we began last night and just continue it with it through the retreat and um, this is a theme of course that I think for me personally, I'm guessing for all of us uh, brings up a lot of rapture It's sort of interesting that in uh, the way the Buddha taught one of the easiest ways to connect with joy is to reflect on these teachings and uh, I know this isn't surprising for some of you but it might be for a few of you who are relatively new that just reflecting on like the experience of non-craving even on an intellectual level like the possibility of the mind or the heart not grasping not struggling can like bring goosebumps or the mind gets really interested. And it's important to be interested in the awakening process because, you know, it can seem like the path of awakening is stressful. That wouldn't be an inaccurate assessment because a lot of the time What we do, the actual training we take up, is difficult. So we want also to be inspired by this process of awakening. You know, there are a lot of different kinds of happiness. And every kind of happiness has a particular shadow. Like there's the shadow, or there's the happiness of getting what we want. And this is a very real happiness. The Buddha never discounted the happiness of getting what we want. Getting home into our bed tonight is a very real happiness. <laughs> and it's to be appreciated. It isn't to be discounted. But what's the shadow of that happiness? The alarm clock at, you know, whatever. 5 o'clock, 6.30, 7 o'clock. For those who live very, very close, quarter to eight. (laughs) That whatever we get, you know, the pleasantness, and the interesting thing about that very real happiness of getting what we want, when we look at it more closely, a lot of that rush of happiness, that very real feeling of happiness is the ending of craving I uh and I were at her mother's house and her brother and sister-in-law were there with their three kids around Christmas time and so we we saw that explosion that is Christmas these days and uh brother and sister-in-law they really do Christmas in a a nice way but it's the kids get a lot (laughs) and uh that it was interesting (laughs) seeing some of the kids, you know, the night before Christmas or before (coughs) Santa came. And just the anticipation, the pain of that anticipation. I remember that. It's quite, even now, some uh, 50 years later, it's a very poignant memory of the, I remember at the time, uh, a kind of disgust with Christmas, even as a I think as a six-year-old, that's what I think that memory is from, of just being disgusted by the amount of pain I was noticing with the anticipation, and that foreboding sense of disappointment, that the actual results won't live up, like I had at that point several years of experience of the actual event not living up to the expectations. And so the whole thing was beginning to feel like a setup. Even though I, I, it's not that I didn't like what I got, but it was just the whole thing had a taste of pain, of stress. And I really noticed that, even as a young person. I think most people do. They just, you know, it's really more a question whether it rises high enough up that the person becomes, the child becomes reflective on it starts starts to uh, orient around that perception of stress. There's the very real happiness of getting rid of what we don't like or what we're afraid of. And uh, you know whether it's a physical element that's been really bothering us. I had a hangnail the other day, you know, and you're just waiting for the moment you get a nail clipper. <laughs> And you can get rid of it. And it just can bug you and bug you. You know, just the roughness in the nail. And it's so nice when you get rid of it. It's like a real relief. Or you've got something in your, between your teeth. And you're waiting for the floss. Everyone's looking out. Because <laughs> we know that suffering of wanting to get rid of something. Or whatever it might be. What a relief. It is when that aversion or that fear is gone from the mind, when we can put that down. So the shadow of those very real happinesses is that there's always the next chapter, like the next thing we want. So we get what we want, but then there's something else we want. Or we get rid of something we don't like, but then there's something else we'd like to get rid of that would make us happy. And then there's some more stable happiness the Buddha would call the bliss of blamelessness or the real, the very real happiness of non-regret. So like tonight, for example, we might lie there in our beds and we might look back upon the day, but we might have a very real happiness of Now regret that today, I don't have anything to regret. I, I mean, I'm not saying this is going to happen. You might have a lot to regret, (laughs) but generally, when we're on a retreat, even if our mind was messy for a lot of the day, generally we have the sense that well, we did the best we could. That this was a noble effort, even if we got pushed around a little bit by the conditioning, the habits of the mind the different parts of the day we can have that feeling and because we haven't done a lot of talking not as many opportunities to put our foot in our mouth or um, act out our aversion in ways that is destructive in, in our relationships so we could have that very real happiness of non-regret that sense of having been good And uh, that's a little bit more stable. It's like every time we remember that, we feel good. In fact, we can go back day after day after day, and if we're we're careful to just remember when we've been good, we can tap back into that feeling like, oh yeah, that was good, that was good. So this isn't an ego trip. This is... uh, a way of recognizing that the heart not only knows what's skillful versus what's unskillful, but has this capacity to restrain itself from doing things that are stupid and cause harm for ourselves and others. And that that's an empowering feeling. So whether you call it the bliss of blamelessness or the happiness of non-regret or the happiness of being a good person, of not harming, the happiness of non-harming. What we call sila is the Pali word for that. But we can attune to that. Now, it doesn't mean that we're perfect, but to whatever degree the mind appreciates or understands right from wrong, right being what actually leads to happiness for myself and others and wrong being what actually leads to suffering for myself and others, to the degree that we recognize that and are so moved by that recognition of what's skillful and unskillful that we're willing to restrain ourselves from what's unskillful, we feel good about that. Like, I not only know how to read this thing called life, But I'm willing to, I trust it enough, I trust my understanding enough to put on the brakes when I have a sense of what's getting set in motion is not what I want to set in motion. And I have this capacity to direct myself in the way that I trust is not going to harm myself or others and might actually set something really good in motion. It's called, I think, a basic moral competence. And it feels good. It's a kind of happiness uh, that comes. In the same way we feel happy when we have uh, other kinds of basic competence, like we're with a group of our friends and we're all riding our bikes and we know how to ride the bike and we just feel good. Or you go play tennis with somebody and you know how to play, you feel good, like, oh, I know how to fit in. In the same way with this moral competence, it's like, oh, I know how to engage life. I know how to fit in. I know how to be a competent, moral human being. And it feels good. I can trust my mind. I can trust my heart to some degree. And that and to that degree, I feel good. That is a more stable happiness, but it still has that shadow because that... Ability to restrain ourselves from doing things that cause harm and directing ourselves toward ways of being, ways of acting that set in motion, good things, that's subject to disturbance. So when there's that perfect wave that deludes us, that, you know, we see something that we lose the power of restraint and we take something we shouldn't take or we act in a way that's, harmful to ourselves or another you know then we do, we lose our feeling of the happiness of restraint or the happiness of non-regret because there it is we feel regret we are embarrassed we feel guilty we wish we hadn't done that I mean who in the room doesn't know the very real pain of having done something regrettable it hurts Every time it comes to mind, and there's nothing we can do about it because we did that, right? Except bear it and not add on to it. You know, feeling regret cannot be avoided. What can be avoided is thinking about the pain of regret in ways that cause more pain. But the pain of regret is imprinted in the mind. I bet there are people in the room You know, people who are in their 60s, 70s, maybe, that can remember something 65 years ago, that it still hurts. I can remember being mean to my brother, uh, you know, almost 50 years ago, and it still hurts. Whenever I do the forgiveness practice, I always bring that situation to mind. Just kind of egging them on, um, in a way, you know, how older brothers just know how to get under the skin, and, uh, I am pretty sure he doesn't remember, or maybe he does, but I don't, I would guess he doesn't, but I remember, it's still, that imprint is still in my heart of being mean, unnecessarily mean, sort of, uh, like, uh, Getting uh, deluded by the power, you know, the power older siblings have. You know, like, because we understand things in a way that the younger sibling doesn't, we we like using that power. And, you know, I had my justifications, but mostly it was about using power in that way. And now there's the regret. But I actually appreciate that regret. I don't beat myself up. I don't do neurotic things with that regret. But it, it, uh, it's like a tenderizing from my heart that I actually like to keep close at hand. And it's not like it's the worst thing I ever did, but for some reason, it's an art, you know, it sort of stands out as an archetype of being stupid and causing harm. And uh, now, it's a memorial to like, well, let's be careful. Let's be careful about how we are, what we say in the world. And there's an even more stable kind of happiness, the happiness, the very real happiness of a mind that is secluded, free from what agitates the mind. So we sometimes call this samadhi or concentration. And this can happen in a sit, but it can also happen in daily life. There are times in daily life when the mind is secluded, it's free of the hindrances. It's not restless, it's not dull, it's not caught in doubt, it's not caught up in desire, craving, it's not caught up in aversion or fear. And so that mind is what we call secluded. So a secluded mind, samadhi, doesn't depend on like the mind visualizing something or repeating just the mantra or being just with the sensations of the breath. It doesn't depend on the the focusing on a particular object. It's really defined by the mind being secluded from what hinders calm or what hinders steadiness and peacefulness and tranquility in the mind. So whatever is agitating the mind, the mind is secluded from that. It's not secluded from the world. And in a way, you can't really be secluded from the world. The world this is all the world you know wherever the mind would go that would be the world too so it's not like the mind can be secluded from the world but it can be secluded from certain qualities of mind that have the characteristic of agitating the mind and that kind of happiness can be even more profound and at times really stable sometimes when you're in that when the mind is in that kind of state It will feel quite resilient and uh, almost held. Even though when you look, you can't actually see what's holding the mind in that really tranquil, pleasant place. But it, it has the feeling of being like solid, grounded, immovable. And it's because the experience of being retreated or secluded from the hindrances it brings up a kind of happiness and that inner happiness, you'd call this still a worldly happiness but it's an inner happiness it's the happiness of a mind not afflicted by you know negative emotional qualities and because there's that inner happiness The mind isn't interested in seeking other kinds of happiness. And so much of what disturbs the mind arises because it's looking for more ordinary kind of happinesses, like the happiness of getting rid of things and the happiness of acquiring things. But because it has this inner happiness, it's not interested in doing those other kinds of things or even judging itself. So it has that stability. And people who've touched that kind of calm, it has an after effect. It like affects the mind for a period of time. Because the mind feels so good, it doesn't do things to screw up its good feeling. See, normally we think we have to do things to maintain a good feeling. Like we we have a really... We stumble upon a really nice mind state and we feel like, oh God, what what did I do to get this so that I can keep doing it? And you could be sure if you have that attitude you're going to screw it up real soon. What can I do to maintain this nice state of mind will screw it up. What's more useful is to understand, well, what did the mind cease doing? And And like I said, it has its own coherence, its own way of like this uh, feedback loop. Because it feels good, its tendency is not to do anything that would screw up its good feeling, because it's content. And the contentedness, the inner contentedness (coughs) suppresses the neurotic tendencies that disturb the mind, that disturb the happiness or the steadiness and easefulness and peacefulness of the mind. It's suppressed. Those tendencies that disturb the happiness of the mind are suppressed for a while because it feels good. And so the practice when you're feeling good, when you stumble upon, like initially you tend to people tend to stumble upon these pleasant inner states, the guideline would be to notice the pleasantness of it. Not to try to make maintain it. That, that doesn't help, but by noticing the pleasantness of it, resting in the pleasantness of it, trusting the pleasantness of it, is what sustains it, right? Because by being more and more aware of the pleasantness of that secluded state, the mind not getting caught in greed and aversion, then the mind is less interested in doing something that would disturb it because it's very clear, clearly aware of the pleasantness. The pleasantness itself is undercutting the tendency to go to greed or to go to aversion. So that's why, that's how it gets sustained. That's sort of nice, isn't it? It's like when you enter peaceful, calm states, get interested in the pleasantness of that state, Being interested in the pleasantness isn't the same as grasping the pleasantness. It's becoming intimate with it, it's resting with it, it's becoming undefended with the pleasantness, with the peacefulness, with the easefulness, with the sense of stability, that feeling of being held that I described. But all four of these kinds of happiness the happiness of getting what we want, the happiness of getting rid of what we don't want, the happiness of feeling good about how we've acted in the world, restrained ourselves from things that would have been harmful, directed ourselves towards acts that we feel good about, feel that they were beneficial to ourselves or others. And this third or fourth kind of the happiness of seclusion, they all have a shadow. They're all vulnerable to change. Although they may be, like this last one, relatively stable, samadhi, that peacefulness of mind, the secludedness of mind, the mind secluded from what's agitating, exists until agitating qualities arise in the mind. You know, like we forget to rest in the pleasantness and we grasp it. Grasping the pleasantness of mind, the grasping agitates the mind. So the mind loses the very thing it wants to maintain because it wants to maintain it. Wanting to maintain peacefulness is not the cause for peacefulness. It's the cause for agitation. Trusting peacefulness Opening, being uh, intimate with the peace of the mind helps to sustain it. But eventually, it will fall away from the mind. So, the Buddha, you know, he talked about all four of these kinds of happinesses. He didn't dismiss any of them. He just was very down-to-earth about it. The real, very real limitations and how better to go toward the more subtle kind of happiness because they tend to be more stable and more satisfying even if they are limited but ultimately the buddha when people were ready would teach first as people got more sensitive and more skilled at the first four happiness happinesses you know he would start to talk about the very real dangers of the first two kinds of happiness like seeking happiness through sense pleasures, getting what you want, there's just a lot of danger in that. It's just a lot of disappointment, feelings of betrayal. Same with trying to get rid of what we don't want. I mean, what is more breaks our heart more than being around somebody who something where somebody is something is really something difficult is happening in their life. And the only thing their mind wants is to get rid of what's going on in their life. But from your point of view, how you see it, it's not going away. Whatever it is, like maybe they're old and they're in the dying process, but they don't want to (coughs) die. Or uh, they're in a really difficult financial state, and there's really no end in sight for them. They don't really have the skills to turn their life around, that doesn't mean it's like hopeless, but odds are this particular thing that they're totally invested in being different is not likely to change. And it really breaks our heart because somebody set themselves up that I'll be happy when I get rid of this, but you don't see it happening. It really breaks our heart because the person's really limited, limited themselves, the happiness they seek, isn't gonna be found. They've really set themselves up to suffer because they've defined happiness in a way that they're not gonna be able to get or unlikely to get. So when the Buddha felt people were ready, he we'll would talk about the danger in craving for sense experience as a cause for happiness. Getting rid of certain sense experiences, getting certain sense experiences, And would it begin to talk about the very real joy of renunciation, what we could call the happiness of non-clinging. The first four happinesses are really the happiness that arises from solving a problem that the self has. Like, I can have the problem of not having what I want, and if I solve that problem, there's a certain kind of happiness. Or I could have the self, me, could have the problem of wanting to get rid of something. if I solve that problem the self has, I feel good. Or I have a lot of regret. Well, I could solve that problem by changing how I relate to people, how I get along, until I don't have any regrets. I feel really good about how I'm relating in community. That's a problem the self has, a lot of regret. Or I could have you know personally have the problem of you know a mind that's agitated all the time and i could personally solve that personal problem so these first four happinesses are happinesses that the self has or problems that the self has and solves and then it's happy for a time but the fourth kind of happiness really refers to as once teacher calls it the problem that the self is instead of the problems that the self has. And the problem that the self is, that's the path of renunciation. Ultimately, what we're renouncing is craving, but craving really is synonymous with selfing, with self-centered thinking. Self-centered thinking is the thinking of grasping or clinging or attaching, identifying. And it's the going beyond this kind of craving or this kind of suffering that is an unconditioned happiness. Because it's the self that is tied to conditions it's the self that thinks happiness is conditioned like when my mind is agitated then i suffer or when i have regret i suffer when i have what i don't want or don't have what i do want then i suffer see those happinesses are all conditioned they're all about the particular conditions that the self is experiencing But when we resolve the problem the self is, we remove the self, then the happiness is unconditioned. It's not about conditions. You could call this the happiness of non-clinging, as I said. The Buddha described this as discovering, like in terms of his own process of discovering an ancient city. For 45 years, you know, from the time of his Deep Insight, for 45 years then, it was as if he was clarifying or cleaning up this ancient city, as he described it, that was abandoned. And it was a beautiful city with beautiful parks and wide avenues, and just beautiful architecture, but it was lost, just like, you know, it's happened in history where people have discovered old civilizations, and it's surprising, oh, like some of the Mayan temples, you know, it's like, oh, there are this many thousands of people who lived here in this very organized way. It's so easy to be dismissive of, you know, these different places around the world that seem to be on hard times. And then to discover that, you know, when people in Europe were living in very simple conditions, you know, very sophisticated civilizations existed. So in terms of our own psyches, you know, there, there is this way, this path that the Buddha then discovered in his own mind that in a sense exists in everybody's mind. And the Buddha's articulation, like what he said once he had his own realization, was in a sense clarifying this inner map or this inner path, you could say. Cleaning it up, making it shine. So that, you know, the teachings now they resonate. You know, we hear these. I remember when I first heard the Buddhist teachings back in the early 80s. They just hit so deep. It was so clear to me very quickly, that this is what I wanted to do in my life. It's like like being knocked over almost. And uh, it's because his articulation, you know, and, and people, other contemporary teachers talking about the Buddhist teachings, that uncovered my own ancient city that has been completely overgrown, you know, with vines and trees and I read recently about an article about where Chernobyl was in, uh, is it in the Ukraine or Russia, I forget, but where they had that nuclear disaster way back. I forget even how far back it was. But, you know, they've uh, closed off much of that area. I mean, it's a huge area that they closed off. And of course, nature just continues, and trees and plants, and people can go visit, but you can't spend much time because of the radioactivity. But it's like this amazing park. Now, to some degree, of course, there's terrible radioactivity, and I'm sure it's affecting the creatures there, but, uh, you know, that whole area is just being, going back, the roads, everything's disappearing. So this path of non-clinging, in a way, in a very deep, deep, subtle way, we're wired this path is available, and it's, it's already wired in, in the sense that it has a particular taste that's unforgettable. It's different than the other kinds of happinesses, even the happiness of a, a mind that's not agitated, that's very peaceful, because this particular kind of happiness is unconditioned it can't be taken away it can't be disturbed it doesn't have a shadow so to whatever degree the mind begins to intuit it that that flavor is unforgettable <coughs> because it resolves any problem the mind can conceive of you know any drama that the mind imagines like death or Uh, global annihilation due to global warming. You know, whatever scares us, whatever it might be, uh, the apes taking over. One of the gifts one of my nephews got was Planet of the Apes, which I haven't seen. (laughs) But I, I understand from the earlier rendition that I did see that the apes take over or the monkeys take over. So whatever scares us more than anything else that somehow isn't an issue anymore. Like being a bad person. That for me is scary still. It can get me. You know, like I'm not good enough. That deep sense of shame can creep in from time to time. And, uh, and I, I sort of have this subtle, pervasive defensiveness like, uh, like I have to prove myself to counter the feeling of not being good enough but it resolves even that very sticky feeling of shame or unworthiness that can come up, this this kind of happiness. Because the mind is independent, it's not dependent, the heart or the mind is not dependent on anything for its happiness, its freedom. Now the Buddha never claimed to resolve the problems of the world, like poverty or injustice or um, acne or (laughs) hemorrhoids. (laughs) These things, these are, I have another nephew who I've seen recently, um, you know, who's one of those going through the awkward teen years, you know, with all the stuff that happens when you're, a teen and your body is just like exploding in all kinds of ways, and hormones are exploding in all kinds of ways, and you just gotta, you know, that's just part of life. I was talking to one of uh, my body workers that I work with and uh, t- told her about hemorrhoids, and <laughs> her response is, you know, I just don't think our colons and rectums were made to lived to be 50 in the 50s and 60s, (laughs) you know, throughout human history most people were dead by this age, and it's true, you know, through the course of history very few people made it this far, and so, you know, the thing just starts to wear out to some degree. (laughs) It's interesting, I've been around old people a lot recently in the last couple years, and uh, and it's just like so uh, poignant to see how bodies, old bodies just don't work very well in so many different ways, whether it's arthritis or digestion or teeth or sight, um, balance. I mean, these, just, these things that in youth we just take for granted, like we can eat something and digest it. But, you know, not necessarily so. we got to really be careful what we put inside us or how we're walking and things like that because things just don't work so well. So the mind can become independent of all of that. Because the Buddha said never tried to resolve that. And it's not that trying to deal or manage these things, that's really actually the more we realize the freedom of non-clinging, that the only thing that's last, left is to, out of joy and compassion, to manage the difficulties in life as best we can, to do something about the oppressive systems that exist in the world, to do something about our ignorance around our relationship with the environment, to do something about how we manage the aging process. So we do that as gracefully as can be done without harming other people, other living beings. So there's nothing to stop us, you know, to stop... Like, for example, the Buddha, you know, he managed his old age and the inevitable pain of old age by going into jhana, by going into deep deep states of concentration to get some relief from the body that really ached the inevitable aches that come with having you know, an 85 or 80-year-old 80 body that lived outside, wandering town to town for most of his life. So we can't change the very real uh, difficulties in human existence, but we can address them with freedom. We can engage them with a heart that's completely free and alive and fearless, which is probably the best way to address the sticky problems of inequities and uh, aging and all the other things that afflict our lives. But first, you know, what really allows us to engage the very real difficulties in life in a skillful way is to liberate the heart from grasping from fear and desire Joseph Goldstein says, uh, in a, said in an interview liberation means letting go of suffering do you fear the prospect of being free from greed do you fear being free from anger or delusion probably not Liberation means freeing ourselves from those qualities in the mind that torment and limit us. So, freedom's not something magical or mysterious. It does not make us weird. Enlightenment means purifying our mind and letting go of those things that cause so much suffering in our lives. It's very down to earth. Just to give us a sense of this uh, in, uh, I forget if it's Ajahn Jayasara's article that I'll be reading from in uh, tomorrow and the next night, he quotes one of the great forest Ajahn's in the Thai forest tradition who said, it rains hard on a covered thing, it doesn't rain hard on an open thing. Just to get just an image of this happiness of non-clinging. When we're a fixed entity in this difficult world in which we live, then all the insults, all the very real insults of injustice and regret and aging and illness and not getting what we want and getting what we don't want, like mosquitoes biting us and other things that agitate the mind, disturb us, they really land. In the same way that, you know, rain really hits something that's hard. Or, you know, when you think about wind, you know, if you put up, you you know, if we're just this body, I remember once backpacking in the White Mountains in New Hampshire uh, late into the fall. It was called and it was like, I was in a bad place in my life. It was right when I was starting turning toward the Dharma. <laughs> and generally, for a lot of us, suffering inspires us to open, and look for an answer outside of our the usual suspects. And so there I was, having suffering the pain of breakup of a girlfriend that I'd been going out with for a long time. And uh, backpacking alone in the White Mountains in October, And uh, sure enough, it was beautiful the day I arrived. And then it was like seven days of rain just above freezing, which is not good. And uh, (laughs) I remember being on one peak and it was like blowing, wet, freezing. And I was just standing there, you know, just feeling this force of the wind and rain and, uh, and just the power of it, you know, just, and uh, that sense of, uh, of exposure, like uh, helplessness and, uh, yeah, just the power of nature. But a lot of that was because I was so established, you know, it was like that thing, I was uh, setting myself up to be hit. I was really identified with the thing that was being hit. And there are ways where we don't have to be that big solid thing, that big target that gets hit by aging, that gets hit by loss, by desire, by regret, by all the really, you know, on a relative level, the very real ups and downs of life. And that's really the trick about being open, like how to become more and more transparent, not distant, but porous, empty, so that we're engaging life, we're intimate, but unaffected or not pushed around by what comes and goes. And that's why we gravitate towards these things like retreat practice where we get to practice in relatively supportive conditions. You know, where we have a a loving community, an orderly community, not too many responsibilities and we're just hanging out and practicing being transparent, porous to all the rubbing and scrubbing of being here. Like, being irritated by the pain in the body or being bored or being, you know, wanting a nice set or wishing there was more stew than there was tonight or whatever it might be. More cookies, but being embarrassed to take, you know, as many as we actually wanted. Like we can be, learn how to be porous about those different mind states, thoughts, sensations, not learning not to let them land, which is what non-clinging is all about. It's not about there, there not being those insults, it's about not being afraid of them, not being afraid of regret, the pain of regret, not being afraid of the force of desire, not being afraid of the force of aversion in the mind just in a sense, letting it go right through. But going right through means we're not afraid of the very real pain. We're just not personalizing the pain. So in a, in a way, the heart is more exposed to pain, but it finds its freedom in the exposure, not in some hard defense. And that's really the, that's the game. That's what we're practicing. You will notice like when we're having one bad sit after another that we start to defend ourselves. Like, I don't want another bad sit. But of course we're just setting ourselves up, aren't we? But we could become more porous. like, well, this will be interesting. Maybe it will be another bad sit. Maybe things will change. But, I, but I'm, not, I'm not establishing myself as the one who needs a good sit. Because I'm not in charge. There isn't anybody in charge. I can just play. I can just participate in this whole thing. And I'm finding that the best way to participate is in the activity of non-clinging. Being porous, being open. Not by establishing myself. Not taking a personal stance. Just because we've gotten beaten down by that strategy, we've learned life has taught us. So I'll leave it here. There's uh, six minutes or so. It'd be nice maybe to hear a few comments in the nights ahead. I'll leave a little bit more time and feel free uh, to leave me questions that you want me to address or to bring them up at the end or to share from your own experience this theme of the happiness of non-grasping. So what any questions or comments you'd like to bring up in the last minutes of our time now? Yeah, Nate. Um, so I've been experiencing today a lot of sort of sustained, stable calm, at least for me. Um, but I was noticing that there wasn't really an element of what I would call rapture or even happiness. And I'm uh, thinking, well, am I just spaced out now? You know, here's the, here's the sensation Like bored, you know, and really. But rather than the sort of forced happiness, maybe more neutral. Yeah. But very calm. Yeah. But maybe maybe that's preferable to a more energetic kind of uh, happiness, ecstatic kind of happiness. And certainly that's how it's described, and that's my personal experience, and how it's described in the Buddhist texts that uh, pity rapture is a relatively early kind of happiness. It's rough. And then the, you know, like the happiness of the deeper states of samadhi, like what's sometimes called fourth jhana, is characterized, I mean, the the real defining characteristic of that fourth jhana is the mind is so stable, so balanced, that it's not. Um, it's not under the influence of pleasant and unpleasant. It's not orienting around pleasant or unpleasant. So, you wouldn't characterize that state of mind or state of heart as being pleasant. That must have been fourth jhana. There you go. <laughs> now remember these these maps, the jhanas. These maps exist regardless of whether the mind's in full absorption. So the, that quality, that coherent state of mind can exist in a, a more fragile way that some people, when they have the talent or they've had the, enough momentum built up because of a lot of uh, retreat practice, they can enter that landing place so there's no deviation there's no wavering in that state but you can experience these coherent states of mind uh, even without full absorption so don't be dismissive of what you are experiencing it's just a matter of entering it more and more fully each time you find yourself there get interested in it the interest is what creates that feedback loop So the more interested the mind is in that calm, that equanimity, the stillness of the absence of desire, right? The more the mind looks at that, the more it's not looking at anything else. And then that leads towards the more full absorption into that state, what we call the fourth jhana, which is characterized by equanimity. It's the happiness of equanimity. Like the earlier jhanas are characterized by the happiness of rapture. And then, you know, the middle jhanas are characterized by the happiness of ease. So not as such an excited joy, but a more of an ah kind of joy. And then the deeper states of jhana are characterized by uh, like a real pervasive sense of peace that isn't pleasant or unpleasant. It's the happiness of being beyond pleasant and unpleasant. The mind that doesn't care about pleasant and unpleasant. That's such a relief. We don't realize how agitating it is for this mind to be in the realm of what's pleasant and unpleasant. Because it's like, that in a sense is the animal realm. Looking for pleasant and unpleasant. It's an agitated realm. So when the mind goes beyond it, it's like so nice not to be concerned with pleasant and unpleasant. Thanks Nate for sharing that. Anything else that seems relevant to the talk tonight? Questions? Yeah, Mary. Well, I'm thinking about this in terms of, I just um, I had to put a dog down. That I was very really attached to for a long time. Um, when this all started happening, you know, I was very resistant to it. And it was, it was, I mean, it was just very, very painful. And part of it was, not wanting this to be true. And once I could get past that and just be in the moment of what was going on and my grief about that, it it wasn't that it was not painful, but it was very different. It didn't have that sharp, jagged edge of, I suppose that's the resistance part of it. And I could just really be very brokenhearted for a while in a way that felt I mean, it wasn't good, but I mean, I felt comfortable it in because it was real, and instead of the you know act of trying to push the whole thing away and make it be something it wasn't. Yeah, this is a great place to end because it's a very real comment that we relate to, but it really covers most of the territory that I brought up tonight in the talk in different ways. Because what Mary mentioned initially, you know, where the mind says no, basically say no, it's drawing this line in the sand like this can't happen this is not okay and we really suffer because we've created a self that will not allow this to be true but life is just going to be what it's going to be and so it's an existential threat because what we've created the self we created that's saying no this can't be true is it (coughs) profoundly threatened by what's actually true but that was all self created we created the self that won't allow this to be true. We've created that existential crisis. And then when, however you did it, you know, you dropped that. Then the interesting thing that Mary described was how she felt enlivened by the very real pain of loss. Because it hurts, loss hurts, but more than the pain of the loss is the unhindered movement of all things. That unhindered movement, the mind not resisting the movement of all things, is beautiful and joyful, even when that movement is characterized by the pain of loss. It's confusing until we get a sense of how it all works, that giving ourselves completely to the life that is, is enlivening and beautiful, even during the really painful times. So, thanks for bringing that up, Mary. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Appreciate being here together. Thanks for listening.